name is Byron. I get the great privilege to be able to serve here as the lead pastor. I am so excited to have you joining us, whether you're in person. Man, we are going to need a bigger building, amen? Oh my gosh, there's so many people packed. The 9 a.m. is full, the 11 a.m. is full. Hey, if you're watching online, thank you so much for joining us today. Today's an exciting day because today we're going to start a brand new series here at Redemption through the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. It's a, it's a series that we're calling The Gospel According to David. David is probably one of the most prolific, the most famous characters that we find in all of the scriptures. And even if you weren't raised in church, you probably know a little bit about the life of David. That's how famous he is. Everybody's probably heard of this. David versus Goliath. Yeah, it's the story of the underdog, the one that nobody believed in, everybody counted him out. The little man who goes against the giant, he takes him out, he conquers, and he is victorious. But, you know, David was known for more than just slaying the giant. David, like the rest of us, his life was a little bit complicated. Because on one hand, David was a shepherd, but on the other hand, he would become the king. David, he was a worshiper, but at the same time, David was a warrior. Now, you would think those two things don't go hand in hand, right? Right? I mean, like the musician and then the, the soldier. You don't really think that because most of the time when you think about musicians, you know, their skinny jeans are too tight for them to go out in battle. <laughs> All the worship leaders with their frosted tips and their, you know, black on black, right? No, but David, not only did he worship but at the same time, he was a, a warrior. David, he was a poet. At the same time, he was also a prophet. David, he was a husband and a father, but he was also an adulterer. And he had a deep father wound inside of his heart. We see David as uh, one of the greatest sinners in all of the scriptures. But at the same time, David is the only person throughout the entire Bible that is known as to be a man after God's own heart. Like the rest of us, David, his life was conflicted. How many of you, sometimes you, you know the right thing to do, but you still find yourself doing the, the wrong thing. You know what God wants for your life, but at the same time, you still have these struggles and these temptations and this pull to do something that you know is not what's best for you. David, he understands that. David, he gets that. That is David's life. And for many of us, that's our life as well. But above all of those things, David was known as a man after God's own heart. And that's who we want to be, amen? We want to be men and women who are passionate about seeking the will of God and to find ourselves living as men and women who are after the heart of God. And here's going to be the thought that's going to guide us over the next several months as we study the life of David. And if you're taking notes, pull out your note sheet, write this down. We are a note-taking church for all those of you who are new. A couple of things we like to do. We like to get a little lively, say amen. We like to clap. We like to, to shout down the preacher. Sometimes he'll say a joke. It might be funny. We laugh. Even if it's not funny, we still laugh for my own ego. And then... And we love to take notes and study God's word. So if you're taking notes, pull out your note sheet. Here's the first line. It's following Jesus is not about perfection, but direction. How many of you are glad that, that God doesn't love us as long as we're perfect? Amen. 
I mean, because if that was the case, then God would not love any of us. God would not save any of us. God would not forgive any of us. God would not be there for any of us. It's not about perfection. Go ahead, raise your hand if you're perfect. Let me see all my perfect people in here. Uh, go ahead, put your hand out. That was a trick question, trick question, because we all know that nobody is perfect. But following Jesus is not about our perfection, but rather it's about direction. It's about us following after him. That's why it says that David was a man after God's own heart, because he was pursuing after God. He was following after God. His desires were towards God, and as David is pursuing after God's heart, God meets him in that moment, and everything in David's life begins to change. Following Jesus is not about us being perfect, because newsflash, nobody is perfect. It's about us following after him, not perfection, but direction. Over the next several months, what we're going to see is that David, he has a complicated life. He is a man of, of confliction. He is a man of temptation. Because on one hand, yes, he is a man after God's own heart. But on the other hand, David, he struggles. He has lust. He has temptation. He has frustrations. He has, he has failures. We're going to see the best moments of David's life, and we're going to see the worst moments of David's life, too. For those of you who grew up in Sunday school, going to church, you probably had the nice flannel graph, and, and, and the Sunday school teacher, she, she told you all about David's life. Oh, David, he was a shepherd, and he would, he would fight lions, and he would fight bears, and he, he took down Goliath. He played the harp. He sang songs to God, and we have this perception of David as if he was unlike the rest of us, that none of us would ever be able to achieve or to be able to be like David. He was this picture-perfect, pristine portrait of, of a man of God. But what we're going to see through this series is that David was a broken man. David was a, a flawed man. David had a tragic life. I mean, just in the story we're going to see today, we're going to see that he was overlooked and he was even rejected by his own family. He has, a, he has a father wound deep inside of him. And that father wound causes him to act out and lash out in ways that we're going to see are going to bring harm both to his life and to the life of others. He was, he was a, a passionate man who pursued after God, but at the same time, he was a passionate man who had too much blood on his hands. He committed adultery. He murdered another man. We're going to see the ups and downs, the highs, the lows. We're going to see him on the mountaintop. We're going to see him in the valley. We're going to see him in the palace, and we're going to see him hiding in caves. And for some of you, that's where you find yourself in life as well. That it's never just everything's copacetic and normal. No, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. The highs and the lows. You feel like you're on the mountaintop only to fall down and hit rock bottom. David understands what that's like because David has been there too. And the good news for us from the life of David is that God is not concerned so much about our perfection as much as he is about the direction of our life. For God, it's more about the journey than it is about the destination. It's about us following after him. We don't serve a God of second chances. You hear that all the time, like, oh, we need a second chance. No, but how many of you are grateful that we serve a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances and 500 chances? That's the type of God that we serve. And that's going to be the life that we see as we study the life of David. You know, David is actually mentioned more in the Bible than anybody else. Anybody else in the scriptures. We see that in the book of Genesis, Abraham has 14 chapters dedicated to his life. 
Joseph has another 14 chapters dedicated to his life. Elijah comes in third. He has 13 chapters dedicated to your life. Of course, there's, there's Jesus. You have the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the whole point of the Bible is to point you to Jesus. And every verse is about Jesus, ultimately. But besides Jesus, David stands above the rest. There are 66 chapters in the Bible dedicated to the life of David. And then if you include all the references in the New Testament and the book of Psalms, which David also wrote, you have over 2,000 verses dedicated to the life of David. So God wanted us to know who David was. God wanted us to learn about David. God had the Holy Spirit write David's story down in a book. And I'm so grateful because we get to now study it today and apply it to our lives. So let me give you three reasons before we start why we're going to study the life of David. The first reason is, is that David shows us how God loves. As we're studying through 1 and 2 Samuel, we're going to see the nature and the character of a good, just, and holy God. We're going to see God love. We're going to see God answer prayers. We're going to see God provide, God take care. We're going to see God judge. We're going to see God bring conviction. We're going to see God challenge. We're going to see God confront David. Now, some of you, as I say that, you're like, but that doesn't sound very loving. No, it's because you have a warped view of what love actually is. You think that love is just somebody patting you on the back and telling you're awesome and everything is amazing. You rock star, never change. But that's not what love truly is. Love, it pursues and it pushes and it encourages, it builds us up and it points us in the right direction for the better and the best things in our lives. And that's what God does. That's the one way that God loves. The second thing is, David shows us who Jesus is. I got two big fancy college words for you. And the first word is called the historical redemptive. Let's all sound smart for just a moment and say that together. Historical redemptive. There you go. I paid $30,000 to learn that, and you learned it simply by waking up and coming to church this morning. Good on you guys, all right? Historical redemption, say, well, what does that mean? It is the history of redemption from Genesis to the book of Revelation is nothing more than the story of God, that we are sinners, we have fallen short of the glory of God, and God sends his son Jesus on a rescue mission to save us from our sins and then bring us into a reconciled, restored relationship with him. And at the end of all things, Jesus will return. He will make the heavens and the earth brand new and we'll live with him for now and forevermore. That's the, the story of redemption. From the table of contents to the maps in the back, that's the historical redemptive view. David is about the historical redemptive view in that it shows us who Jesus is. So you're going to see parallels in David's life and Jesus' life. He is what is a typology or a type of Christ. You're going to see this because here's some things that are off the top of my head. Number one, Jesus is from Bethlehem. Where's David from? He's from Bethlehem. Another example is that David was a shepherd. Okay, Jesus comes and he says, I am the good shepherd. David becomes king. Jesus is the king of kings. David, he was anointed by a prophet. And then Jesus, he was baptized by the final prophet, John the Baptist. We see that David was rejected by his brothers. Jesus was rejected by his family. David, he was he was denied and he was betrayed by his friends. Jesus would be denied and he would be betrayed by his friends as well. 
we're seeing that there is a foreshadowing that is happening between David's life and that which is the life of Christ. And so through this, what we're going to constantly be doing is pointing you to who Jesus is through the story and through the life of David, because David shows us who Jesus is. But that leads us to number three, is that David shows us who we are. Oftentimes in and certain traditions, you're going to hear this phrase. Maybe you're going to tell your friends, hey, my church started the book, of, you know, studying the life of David, First and Second Samuel. And your friends might say this. It's like, oh, yeah? Well, you're not David. Okay, that's a very popular thing in a lot of church circles to say. Jesus is David. You're not David. Okay, I understand that. In fact, there is the historical redemptive view that very much so it is pointing us towards Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, we can't get so focused on the historical redemptive view that we forget out on second fancy word, the historical ethical view. Turn to your neighbor and say historical ethical. Now turn to your other neighbor and say historical redemptive. Oh my goodness, look at y'all. Y'all sound like a bunch of theologians. I feel like I'm back at Bible college, somebody. Come on. You say, well, what does that mean? The truth is, is David is not Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus is Jesus. Okay, and you're not David, you know why? Because you are you, right? Jesus is Jesus, and there's some foreshadowing, but last time I read the Gospels, Jesus never murdered anybody, okay? So the illustration breaks down there. Jesus never stole from anybody. Jesus never cheated on his wife. Jesus never killed 200 Philistines and came back with their foreskins. That's in there. Go ahead, we're going to cover that in a few weeks. The foreskin sermon, right? Saul said, bring me 100 foreskins. David's, David's a bad dude. He came back with 200 foreskins. That's how bad David was, all right? But Jesus, I don't remember him ever pulling out a knife and going, shh, all right, come here, Peter. Oh, I was talking about the disciple Peter. Never mind. She got it. She got it. She understood. All right, all right, there you go. There you go. All right, all right, all right. God is, who Jesus is, who we are, and how we apply it to our lives. You know, there's a, a lot of new people who have been coming to our church. Last week we baptized 48 people here at Redemption. That is crazy. You say, but Byron, I saw online you said 47, now you're saying 48. Is that pastor's math? No, because one guy actually, he couldn't make it to service because he was working offshore. So he showed up on Tuesday and he texted, he said, hey, pastor, can we leave the baptism up? Because I'm coming to be baptized. And him and his family gathered around and our team actually got to baptize him because he wanted to be obedient. He didn't want to wait till next time. He wanted to follow Jesus in baptism today. And so we have 48 <laughs> baptisms. That's insane. It's amazing to see what, what God is doing with all the new believers, with all the people who are new. Y'all need to come to Next Steps today, 1230, right after service. We want to help you get you plugged in and connected to the church. Me and Ashley will love to have lunch with you. Our team's going to watch your kids. We're going to share the story about redemption and how you have a big part to play in all of what God is doing. But with all the new people, all the families that are coming in, all the new faces and new friends, I want to get everybody all together at the same time. We can all get on the same page. We can learn and we can grow in our understanding of Christ. And so we're studying this book because it shows us how we apply the gospel to our everyday 
lives. And I'm just so excited to begin to study it because we all need to know how God loves us. We need to know who Jesus is and we need to know who we are so that way we can know how we are to live. And so that is my introduction to the story of David. Are you guys excited to dive in? Are you excited to learn about the life of David? I mean, 66 chapters, 2,000 verses. We're not going to do all of them today, but it's going to be an exciting time. So I'm ready to dive in. And I want to talk to you today where the sermon is called, What's So Amazing About Grace? You know that song, Amazing Grace? It's a very familiar song. Amazing Grace. Some of y'all think I'm about to sing it, but I'm not because I want you to come back next week. <laughs> Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Right? That's, that's my story. That's, that's your story. That's our story. And at the same time, that's David's story. David, he was a man who was in need of grace. You and me, we are people who are in need of the amazing grace that God so lovingly gives to us. And so I want to give you today four reasons that grace is amazing. We're going to read it all, make a few observations, and then I'm going to give you four reasons why grace is amazing. Let's read it all up front. The Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, he is a prophet. So he hears from God, and he speaks on behalf of God to his people. God comes to Samuel, and he says, how long will you grieve over Saul? We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Since I have rejected him. Circle that word, rejected. Highlight it, underline it, hold on to it. Rejected him from being king over Israel. Just a little Bible study tool. Anytime you see the same word repeated over and over again, hermeneutically, Okay, that's, a, that's another fancy college word. Y'all getting so smart here at Redemption. Hermeneutically, right? So we're like, who's Herman? And why does he care about minutics? All right, hermeneutic, all right? It's a tool that says, if you see a word that gets repeated, that is a key to unlocking the text. And we're gonna see that word rejected show up all over this text. Rejected him. Fill your horn with oil, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. So that's your clue that Saul is not a good king. He will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me whom I declare you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, and trembling, they said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. And when he came, he looked at Eliab. So what is he doing? He's going to look for the future king of Israel. Saul has been rejected. God says, go to Samuel's house. He's going to have a son, and the son that I choose will be the future king of Israel. So Samuel, he lines up all of Jesse's sons. First son up, Eliab. And he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is my guy. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height or his stature, because I have, what's the word, rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abimadab, and he made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen him. This man's been rejected as well. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made all seven of the sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. 
Did God send me here for no reason? Did God lie to me? Did he mislead me? What's the deal? Samuel, none of your sons have been selected. They've all been rejected. And then he asked this question. Do you have any other sons? Are all the sons here? And he said, oh, yeah, there's that one boy. His name's David. He's out taking care of the sheep. Don't bother about David. He's just a, he's just a little teenager. He's, he's 13 years old. He's got pimples and acne and his armpits are all sweaty and his voice is cracking. Like, don't, don't worry about, don't worry about Jesse. Don't worry about David, Jesse says. And then here's what, here's what Samuel says. Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. How many of you belong in a large family? You come from a large family? I'm the oldest of six, right? You come from a large family? Like, you know, if you're not there at dinner, you ain't eating. Like David, he wasn't invited to the party. He wasn't invited to the feast. The prophet shows up and Jesse lines all of his family together, but David was not invited. And God flips the script through the prophet and says, ain't nobody eating until David gets here. That's the God we serve, amen. And so he says, get him for we will not sit down until he comes. And he sent and he brought him. Now he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and he went to Ramah. In order for us to understand what's happening, we actually need to kind of enter into the text. And we need to begin to understand the culture and the context of what's going on there. Because we don't live in a day of prophets and kings and anointing oils and heifers. Like, that's just not our society that we live in. So we need to kind of step back and get a, a biblical understanding of what is happening. So here's, here's the, you know, 30,000 foot view of the Bible. God created Adam and Eve, and he would walk with them in the cool of the garden. He spent time with them. He would lead them and he would guide them. That's God's original plan. Adam and Eve, they sinned, they fell, they rebelled. And as they separated themselves from God, God sent them out of the garden. But he was still loving and caring and he was still walking with them. He walked with them until he comes to a man named Abraham. And he calls to Abraham and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will give you a great nation. You'll be the father of many nations. That was a promise God gave to, to Abraham. And so God led Abraham and his people. Eventually, the Israelites, they found themselves in slavery in Egypt. So God raised up another prophet. His name was Moses. He said, let my people go. And then God delivered them from Egypt. And what did he do? He led them through the Red Sea. He led them through the wilderness with a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Because God, he was the one who was, he was leading them. He says to them that I will be your God and you will be my people. And so for thousands of years, God led the people of Israel. He was their king. He was their judge. He was their God. But eventually, the Israelites, they began to notice that other people, they had kings. And now our king is invisible. Nobody can see our king. Why do we have to act different than the rest of the nations? Why do we have to be different than the rest of the nations? They have kings. We want a king. God, why don't you give me a king? This is how my five-year-old thinks, by the way. Because she's like, Daddy, how come they get to have sleepovers and I don't get to have sleepovers? Daddy, how come they get to ride in the trunk and I don't get to ride in the trunk? Daddy, how come they don't get, I get it, what, what, how come I can't do it? I'm like, listen, baby, that's their family and they don't love their kids. We love you, which is why we don't let you do whatever it is that you want to do. But that's how my, my daughter thinks. That's how the Israelites think. That's how we think. Like when we get our eyes on people, we get our eyes off of God. 
And we start worrying about what other people are doing. We forget about where God is leading us in our lives. And so the Israelites, they just like, we want a king. We want a king. We want a king. Just like Esther, chicken nuggets, chicken nuggets, chicken nuggets, chicken nuggets. Like that's, that's how the Israelites thought. If that girl eats one more chicken nugget, she is going to become a chicken nugget. That's, but that's how, that's how the Israelites were. And eventually God was like, okay, fine. You want a king? I'll give you a king. And so the people selected a man named Saul. And when they chose Saul to be the king, man, he was the kingliest of kings. In fact, before the Lord anointed him as the king, it, it tells us a little bit about his story in 1 Samuel chapters 8 and 9. It says that he was head and shoulders above the rest. I mean, he was, he was handsome. He was fine. Like, he was the guy every man wanted to be and every lady wanted to be with. That's who Saul was. He was, if you were going to select a king, it was, it was Saul. But what we see is this, is that he was not a good king. He was not a man after God's own heart. He was a man with his own agenda. He had pride. He had arrogance. And most of all, he was disobedient to the commands that God had given him. He didn't want to follow God. He wanted to be his own God. He wanted to do his own thing. He didn't want to lead his people. And the power got to his head, and it led to pride, to where he eventually would disobey God. And God warned them about this. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, he says, Samuel, before you give these guys a king, you need to let them know what a king is going to do. A king is going to tax them. A king is going to take their best land, and he's going to call it his own. A king is going to take their daughters and make them into slaves, take their sons, and turn them into soldiers. Are you sure you really want a king? And the people said, yes, we want a king. He said, okay, fine, Saul's your king. And so for 20 years, Saul reigned until one fateful day in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God says, Saul, I have rejected. It's time for a new king, for a new person that would lead my people. And what I want to show you today is this, is the way that God chooses versus the way the world chooses is entirely different. What God sees versus what we see is entirely different. Because man looks on the outward appearance, but what does God do? God looks upon the, the heart. See, when it comes to teaching of the Bible, there are some people who would say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of works, and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. But that's actually not true. In fact, the whole story of the Bible has always been that we serve a God of grace. Because God looks upon the, the heart of David. You know what we call that? We call that, we call that grace. That it was David's heart that he would pursue after God. He wanted to be a man after God's own heart. It was his humility that was able to, to, to repent and to receive the goodness of God in his life. And so here's what I want to do. With the remainder of my time today, I want to give you four reasons that grace is amazing. We're going to see it play out through the story. The first reason is this. It, grace is amazing because it is grace that saves you. It's grace that we are saved. In this text, we're going to see a story of two kings, King Saul and King David. And they are completely, diametrically opposed to one another. King Saul, he was strong, he was mighty, he was powerful, he was wealthy, he was good looking, he had all of the prestige and all the military might and all the power, he had the crown, and yet he was rejected. And then you have David, a shepherd boy from the middle of nowhere in a small town that wasn't even invited in front of the family. He wasn't even invited or chosen to be nominated as the king. 
And yet, who does God choose? God doesn't choose Saul. No, God chose chose David. In fact, it says the word rejected multiple times. Saul, I have rejected. Abinabad, I have rejected. Eliad, I have rejected. Shema, I have rejected. Everybody that looked the best, tried the hardest, and would play the part, every single one of them rejected. The one who had nothing to do, he was the one who was chosen and accepted by God. I would think that this is what we would call a theology of Saul versus a theology of David. You know, in America, most people have a theology of Saul. Say, well, what is a theology of Saul? A theology of Saul is if you work hard, try hard, do good, then you're a good person. Saul, that's his life. Ain't nobody like me. Ain't nobody better than me. I am the best of the best. I am trending on Twitter. I got more Instagram followers than anybody else. That's, that's him. He's the most successful. When you're driving down the road, he's the car that everybody's trying to look at. He is the one who has his life all together. That's, that's Saul. And the, and the David is the one that nobody's paying any attention Two, recently Ligonier Ministries, they actually released a state of theology in America. And here's what they discovered is that 90% of Americans believe in heaven. 80% of Americans believe that they're going to heaven. And then they asked this question. They said, well, how do you know that you're going to heaven? And here's what the overwhelming majority of people said in this survey. They said, because I'm a good person. True or false redemption? We don't believe that. We, we don't believe that God saves us because we are good. You say, but I'm a good person. Okay, question. Saul thought he was a good person too, right? So, so what makes someone a good person? You know, I bet every one of you are like, I'm a good person. But I think there's somebody who doesn't like you and they would say you're not a good person. So, who's, so whose opinion are we going by on whether who's a good person or not? We're we going by your opinion or their opinion? Right? I mean, who determines who's good? Everybody's like, but I'm a good person, really? Because you walk your dog, you don't beat your wife, and you recycle? Is that what makes you a good person? I mean, I just remember it recently, it wasn't too long ago, we were di- disowning our family because they wouldn't wear a mask. Does that make them bad people? I'm a good person? Or because you got the jab and they didn't get the jab, are they good and they're bad? That's the entire nation right now. Left versus right wants to point fingers and determine who's a good person. And how do you figure out who's good? By judging other people by other people. So that places you in the arbiter of judge, jury, and the executor of who's good and who's not good. You're basically pretending to be God every time you claim that you're good. I mean, who's, who's good? I mean, we, we see people on the left, they're like, well, this is what's good. And then people on the right, they say, no, that's evil, and this is what's good. And if there must be a, a good, then there must be a God who determines what good actually is. And here's what the Bible says, none are good. No one is good but God alone. See, the truth is people fool themselves. They're like, but I'm a good person. No, you're a bad person who occasionally knows how to do good things. That's the reality of it because God knows your heart, your thought, your words, your deeds, your actions, and your inclinations. And he knows all of the things that you got away with that nobody else saw. Could you imagine how many speeding tickets you'd get if, there, if every time you went over 75 miles an hour, you just got another ticket? You still think you're a good person? You just got away with stuff. We, we like to, to fool ourselves. You know why? Because that's the theology of Saul. Theology of Saul is I'm a good person. I worked hard. I tried hard. I earned this. I deserve this. That's the theology of Saul. David's theology is this. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. But yet God still gives grace to me freely. David knows 
that he has overlooked, dejected, and rejected by his family, not even invited to the party. And yet God sees him in his lowliness. God sees him in his brokenness. God sees him in the pain that he's in. God sees him in the rejection. God sees him in that moment, in that field, in that season. And God says, ah, that's the one that I choose. Not based upon his appearance, but rather based upon his heart. It is grace, my friends. It is grace that saves us. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Grace is not achieved, grace is received. This is one thing that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other religion would say, if you want God to love you, here's the big long list of things you need to do. If you work hard, try hard, do good. If you pay off your karmic debt, if you reincarnate enough times, if you go to this pilgrimage, if you travel to Mecca, if you wear these clothes, if you speak in tongues, if you give this much money, if you could do all of these things at the end of your life, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then maybe God's going to love you. Grace says, one step, trusting in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, that's enough. Because grace is not a reward for good behavior. Grace is not something that you achieve through your works and efforts. Grace is something that you receive based upon the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus on the cross in your place for your sins. That, my friends, is how we are saved. God, David didn't do anything for God to save him. God saved him because that's just who God is. Several years later, the Apostle Paul comes along and he says in Ephesians chapter 2, For we are saved by grace, through faith, not by our works, so that no man might brag. Theology of Saul would love to have you brag about how good of a person you are. The humility of grace says it's not because of me, but it's all because of him. Grace, my friends, it is grace that saves us. Second thing is this, it's grace that changes us. This week I had the opportunity to travel to San Antonio where um, we actually helped train 21 new church plants with the Church Multiplication Network. It's our partnership with the Assemblies of God. We are a CMN church. We're a product of CMN. Super excited about it because since 2008, we've actually planted 8,000 churches in America, and that has impacted hundreds of thousands of lives all across the nation. I love my CMN family. I love my tribe. And as I was sitting there training these church planters, one of them asked me, he said, he said Byron, what's your story? Right, how, how did you get where you're at? How, how did Jesus change your life? I love when people ask that story because I get to tell people how Jesus has changed my life. I get so excited being able to talk about that. And so here's, here's what I tell them all the time. I say, so you know, when I was a kid, I had a drug problem. And they say, really? I said, yeah, my grandparents drugged me to church. <laughs> See, I am kind of funny sometimes. But my grandparents were praying grandparents. They love the Lord, and I, I grew up in church, but like many of you around the age of 15, I just gave up. My heart got bitter and hard towards the church and towards the Lord, and I, I turned my back, and I walked away from God. In fact, I ran from God, and I, I developed um, depression and anxiety. I was struggling with a lot of questions. I didn't feel like the church was able to answer the questions that I had. I developed an eating disorder. I'm in and out of, of being sick and almost to the point of hospitalized, being, having suicidal ideations as a, young, as a young man. And so instead of turning to God, I decided to turn to drugs to be able to numb the pain. So I started drinking and partying. And over time, I developed a crystal meth addiction. Uh, and several felonies came along with that, such as cocaine, crystal meth, felonies, marijuana felonies, DWIs, and 
And so I'm 20 years old. My life is totally a wreck, in and out of jail. And I met a, a cute girl, and we would party all the time. And so she's on drugs, I'm on drugs, we're partying, hooking up, we're sleeping together, we're staying at hotel rooms. I mean, six months, it was the wildest time of my life. And then something happened. One night, she was sitting at home, and her brother had a passion worship album from like 1999. And she decided she was going to put that in and she was going to listen to it. I don't know why, but she was raised in a, in, a, in a Southern Baptist church. And for some reason, she just wanted to put that, put that worship album on. And she put it on, and God just rushed in that room, met her in that moment. And the Spirit of God, just the repentance of her heart, just, she just began to weep and she began to cry. And she gave her life to Jesus that night. And then she called me the next day and she said, she said, hey, I became a Christian. I gave my life to Jesus. I don't want to keep living the way that I'm living. Will you take me to church? I said, that sounds terrible. I've been trying to get away from God, and now you're trying to get me to go to church. But here's what I, I thought. I said, well, if I take her to church one time, then she'll leave me alone, and I won't have to go back. That's how some of you guys got here, right? That's how some of y'all got to find yourself here. Your, your, your old lady was like, hey, you're going to come to church with me? And you're like, all right, fine. And then all of a sudden, God got a hold of your heart. That's my story. So, so I decided we were going to go to church, and that Sunday, it wasn't the worship, it wasn't the sermon, I don't know, if the, I don't think it was the people, it wasn't the coffee, all I knew was this, is that when the pastor said, bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand, if you want to give your life to Jesus, come down to the altars, and it was like an outer body experience, my body just got up, and I found myself kneeling at the altars, and I gave my life to Jesus 16 years ago, and my life has been changed ever since. And me and that girl in August, we're going to celebrate 14 years being married. Her name was Ashley. And so people ask me, they say, they say it's kind of hard sometimes. People are like, Byron, what do you love most about Ashley? And there's a whole lot of reasons that I could give. But one of the things that I'm most grateful for my wife is because she led me to Christ. She, not, Jesus changed our lives. And I believe that Jesus changes others' lives as well. Jesus changed David's life. Do you think David's life looked different after this moment? I mean, he goes from the pasture to the palace. He, he's going from the field to becoming the king of Israel. He's going from being a shepherd boy to, to being a king. His life changes forever. And I want you to know that when you meet Jesus, your life will change too. When you meet Jesus, he changes everything in your life. Listen, it's impossible for you to meet Jesus and stay the same. Right? The joy, the hope, the faith. The, the, the mindset that comes along with a faith in Christ, it transforms you, it changes you, it motivates you, it inspires you to become the person who God has created you to be. It's impossible to meet Jesus and stay safe. And if you're here and you've met Jesus and your life looks exactly the same, I have to wonder if you actually met him in the first place. Because if you say, I'm a Christian, but you have no desire to live for him, you have no love in your heart for him, you're not praying, reading your Bible, going to church, you're not sharing your faith with others, you're continually, consciously living in sin, and it doesn't tear you apart, then I have to wonder, did you actually meet Jesus, or did you just have an emotional experience? Did you really repent of your sins, or did you just feel sorry when the pastor was preaching? Right, because if you've met Jesus, then things in your life, they start to change. It's impossible to meet Jesus and stay the same. David, his life changed forever. And when you meet Jesus, the grace of God will change your life forever as well. Let me give you five ways that, that grace changes you. Number one, when you meet Jesus, the grace of God, it gives you a new life. 
Here's what we see in Romans 6. We were buried therefore with him by a baptism into death in order that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in normalness of life. That's not what it says. What does it say? It says in a new life. You get a new life with Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. That as Jesus died on the cross, your sins were hung on that cross with them. As he was buried in that grave, your sins were buried. God has forgiven them. God has forgotten them. He no longer holds them against you. And as Jesus resurrected into a newness of life, you too, the moment you profess faith in Jesus, the old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. He resurrects you into a newness of life. You get a new life when you get grace. The second thing is you get a new mind, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may test and discern that will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Grace changes the way you think. It changes the way you see different things. It gives you a new worldview. It gives you a new mindset. It gives you a shift in your perspective. You no longer see things the way that they are. You see the way that God has created them to be. And it gives you the ability to discern the pleasing and the perfect will of God for your life. It changes your mind. Number three, it gives you a new identity. This week I was thinking about it. There's dozens of identity statements in the Bible. We just did the book of Colossians called Everyday Saints. The number one identity statement in the New Testament is that you are a sinner. That's actually not what it says. Some of y'all got real nervous when I said that. No, it's that you are a saint. You've been set apart holy and declared righteous by God. You're a saint. And we know we're a child of God. We're brothers and sisters in the faith, sons and daughters of the king. But this week I was like, God, what identity statement do you want for me to adopt this week over my life? And God brought me to John 15, 15, where Jesus says to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, but now I'll call you my friends. You know that whenever you are in relationship with Jesus, he says, you're my friend. He says, I call you my friend. You're, you're, you're a friend of God. Jesus says, you're my friends. What do friends do? Friends love and care. Friends support. Friends bless. Friends encourage. Sometimes friends kick you outside the rear because you're being an idiot. That's what a good friend will do, right? And that's what Jesus does for us. He leads us. He guides us. He convicts us. He challenges us. And he helps us become who he created us to be. He says, I'm your friend. It's the identity that comes. Some people say, but, but, but we're all friends of God. Not true. Not true. You say, we're all children of God. Not true. Only those who are in Christ Jesus are saints, children of God, brothers and sisters, and friends of God. You get a new identity whenever you begin to follow Christ. And then number five, Number four, you get a new community, 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There is a pandemic that is greater than COVID and is a pandemic of loneliness. COVID only exasperated the loneliness that many people were already feeling. It's one of the bad things about church online. Everybody's church online, shut down churches. That was, I hated that season of our church because so many people are hurting. And the last thing that hurting people need to do is be alone with their own thoughts, sitting in a room by themselves. The sickness, the, the hurt, the pain that many people were going through. And we could try to do the best we can through phone calls, text, and through computer screens. And God bless it for the season that it was in. But man, can I just tell you that coming out of COVID, there are more people who are struggling and hurting and broken now than there was before we went into COVID. And it's because God did not create us to go through life alone. We're made to be in relationship both with him and with other people. You need a community. The only thing harder than, than, than life is doing life by yourself. 
But God, in his goodness, he brings us into a church that becomes the community of people. And then lastly, number five, we get a new destiny, Romans 8, 28. And we know that there that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. Listen, God made you on purpose. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You are not a failure. God made you on purpose, and he made you for a purpose. There is a plan. There is a will. There is a reason that you are alive and you are breathing today. You were made on a purpose, for a purpose. God has a great purpose for your life. And whenever you trust and you follow after Jesus, the purpose of your life changes from what's in it for me to how can I bless and serve and be a blessing as to as many people as possible. He will fulfill the great purposes that he has in your life according to his good will and his good measure. You get a new life. You get a new mind. You get a new identity. You get a new community. And by grace, you get a new destiny over your life. This is what God does for us. I mean, when you receive grace, everything in your life changes. God loves you too much to leave you where you are. God will take you as you are. You come to him just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way that he found you. We come to Jesus just as we are broken, flawed, tattered, stained. We come to Jesus tired, beat up, exhausted. We come to Jesus and say, God, this is who I am. This is my sin. This is where I'm at. This is what I've gone through. This is what I've done. This is what others have done to me. I come to you just as I am. We don't have to clean up to come to Jesus. He meets us right where we are at. But the grace of God, my friends, is so good that he loves us where we are, but he loves us to... too too much to leave us where he found us at. He wants to change our lives. This is the good news of grace. God loves you too much to leave you where you are. Which leads to number three, it's the grace of God that empowers us. Some of you right now, you're, you're thinking, okay, Byron, but that's David's life, that's not my life. David was a king. I wait tables, I'm a single mom, I'm on a fixed income, I work at the plants, I work at the refineries, I, I work at the school, right, right, that was David, but I, I'm divorced, that was David, but I'm struggling with a porn addiction, that was David, but you don't know what I'm going through in my life, that was David, but you don't know the things that I've encountered, and that might be great for them, that might be great for you, preacher man, that might be great for all the other believers who are in this room, but none of this applies to my life, actually it does. Actually, it applies to your life maybe more than anybody else's life. You know why? Because you have something that David only dreamed of. David was a shepherd who became a king. David was a poet. David was a prophet. David wrote the book of Psalms. 66 chapters are dedicated to his life. Over 2,000 verses. But even the lowest of us who feel the most insignificant in our lives, we have something that David only dreamed of. You know what that is? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Is what he says. As, as Samuel anoints him with oil, it says, The Holy Spirit rushed upon David from that day forward. I want you to understand something that every single one of you, the moment you became a Christian, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 tells us that no one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. The moment you become a Christian, you receive two gifts one gift, grace. That saves you. The second gift, grace that empowers you. God, very God, the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence inside of your chest. The same God that hovered over the waters in the book of Genesis. And the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave. The same power that did all of these things now resides in every single one of you. And here's the difference is that 
in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would rest on a person. But because of the new covenant, the Spirit of God resides in you. See, David, he had to have a prophet to be able to tell him the word of God. But you have God's very God whispering in your ear. Any moment, leading you and guiding you. See, David, he had, he had the spirit that would rest upon him, that would allow him to do some, some good things, some great things. But it was the, it was the spirit of God that rise, resides inside of us that gives us the power. Say, 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 David, but he, he slayed a giant. You know how he did that? It was the Spirit of God that empowered him to do that. And for you in your life, it's the Spirit of God that is going to empower you to overcome the giants in your life. How did David overcome temptation the same way you overcome temptation? Through the Spirit of God that is active and working in your life. How did David prophesy by the Spirit of God? How do you do the same by the Spirit of God? How does David worship the way he does? How does David lead the way that he does? How does David bring restoration into his family? I want you to understand something. It is the Spirit of God that does that in David's life, and it only rested on David, yet the Spirit now resides in every single one of you who put your hope and faith and trust in Jesus. It is the power of God for your life, which leads to our fourth and final point. It is the grace of God that sustains us. So how does the story end? It's a fantastic story. It's an amazing story. It's a crazy story. I mean, what happened? A king is rejected. A prophet arises, and he goes to, a, to find a new king. He says, the king's going to kill me. God says, bring a cow. Okay, so he brings a cow. He says, Where, where's your sons? And he lines up all the sons but one. He goes down the list. Eliad, rejected. Abinadab, rejected. Shema, rejected. All seven of them, rejected. You have any other kids? Oh, yeah, there's this one shepherd boy. Go ahead and bring him out. He's not worth anything. And God says, this is the one that I choose. And he breaks the flask and he pours the oil over David. And the spirit of God rushes in like crazy. It's an amazing story. Oh my gosh, it is so epic. And how does it end? Verse 13, and Samuel went home. Say, that's it? That's it? I mean, where's the drama? Where's the action? Where's the suspense? I need an epic. That's not how it ends. See, most people think that the moment that David was king, he just went straight into the palace. But that's not true. In fact, he's going to spend about another 20 years before he ever becomes king. So how does that make sense? Where's the action? Come back next week. Because we're going to have some more action next week. But I, I, want, I want to say something to, to you guys. Talking about grace and how grace we are saved. Some of you today, you're going to give your life to Jesus today. And you know what you're going to do when you get up and leave here? You're going to go home. You're going to go back to your wife. And you're going to have to build a relationship with her that's based on the scriptures instead of just based upon your previous way of acting and treating your kids. Some of you are going to go home and you're going to go back into the temptations of alcoholism, maybe addictions, maybe the loneliness that you feel 
maybe pornography, whatever it may be. You're going to go back home and you're going you're to see reminders of your old life. You're going to go back home and you're going you're to go to the same job that you worked last week. And you're going to walk in and you're like, hey, guess what? I went to church yesterday and I became a Christian. And all of your friends are going to go. probably what the brothers thought whenever David said, I'm going to be king. The brother said, you? Say, hey, I went to this really great church called Redemption. They're like, who are you to invite me to church? Or maybe you're going to be like Ashley and have to build up the courage to go and tell your boyfriend, hey, I'm a Christian now and I, I can't keep doing and living and acting and doing the things that we've been doing. And you're going to have to make that decision. David had to make those hard decisions. And those of you who become Christians and begin following after Jesus, you have to make those decisions too. Because he just goes home. And you're going to have to go home. When I got up from that altar 16 years ago, you know where I went? I went home. And I had to start making decisions about how my life was going to look from that day forward. And I had to make some, some changes in that day forward. Because here's what I want you to know. It's the last line as we close is this, is that salvation is not a one-time event, it's a lifetime experience. There's a lot of people who make a decision to follow Jesus, but they don't make it an experience for the rest of their lives. their hand or they pray a prayer or they might walk an aisle or they might have a moment where they feel God but they don't continue to walk with God through the remainder of the chapters we're going to see two books of 1st and 2nd Samuel of David learning how to walk with God through the trials through the tribulations through the ups and downs the hardships the mountains and the valleys the good days the dark days and the bad days but you know what he never stopped being a man or a woman after the heart of Salvation, my friends, is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. Grace, my friends, is not a fire, fire alarm you pull in case of emergency, break glass, and say this prayer so I can know that I'll be one of the 90% of people who think you go to heaven because you're a good person. It's not what grace is, my friends. Grace is not the finish line. Grace is the starting line. Grace is the first step in the journey of walking with Jesus. And the good news is, is that God's not after your perfection, but he is after your direction. And if the direction of your life is not following after Jesus, you need to make a decision today to truly have to follow him.